0: text for the sermon this morning is taken from the gospel. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It would be hard to overestimate uh, the importance of eating and drinking together for the life of the church. Uh, in Trinity season alone, we have eight of the Gospels are about eating and drinking uh, together, uh, and this uh, is the second wedding feast uh, in Trinity. The first one being uh, the second uh, Sunday of Trinity. A few years back, I read a uh, Eamon Duffy's uh, book entitled "The Voices of Morbeth. Uh the book is based on events in the parish life that were recorded by their vicar, what we would call a rector, uh, of Marbeth, uh, whose name was Father uh, Christopher Tricky. Not a best name for a priest, the, the last one anyway. Christopher's pretty good. Tricky, a little questionable. Uh, anyway, he kept records, and he was their priest uh, from 1520 until his death in 1574. He was Morbith's one and only priest through the reigns of Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary Tudor, and Queen Elizabeth. Lots of up and downs in that period, and also a lot of, you know, heads off as well. <coughs> Morbith had about 150 parishioners, and when I say Morbeth, I am referring to the parish, but the parish is the village. Those are equivalent uh, uh, words, the village, the parish, about 150 parishioners. Uh, throughout that time. Now, and he kept records. So whether it was a representative of the crown holding court in the church uh, to settle a parish dispute, regulating the common obligations of the people to the crown or to the church or to one another. In uh, Morbeth, there was no distinction drawn between community at prayer and community at its business. In fact, they wouldn't have used the word community even. They would have said parish. Uh, this is the parish and, and, and there's no distinction between the life in our parish, life of the church, life in it no such thing as secular uh, not really, didn't exist from births, baptisms buying and trading uh, to building a common barn which they, he records they did fencing the sheep, uh, feasting and fasting, uh, life was a whole and, and next to the parish church Uh, Building, The uh, most important building in the parish uh, was the church's ale house, Uh, and that's what it was known as. Uh, And and it was the Young Men's Club, uh, and that's what they called it, the Young Men's Club, their responsibility to brew the beer, to brew the ale, and to make sure that the parish was well stocked with that. Um, It's equivalent, obviously, to our parish hall, or for us, our undercroft. A big two-story hall, outfitted with cups, platters, long tables, chairs, benches, and tablecloths, all church property that was available to parishioners for weddings and other gatherings. There was a big fireplace uh, and a spit for cooking, and the people of Moribeth spent a lot of their time together in that place, eating and drinking together together. has always been characteristic uh, of the common life of the church. And we'll talk more about that. I will talk more about that as I go along. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Second Sunday of Trinity as I said, has this very same parable, uh, except from Luke, uh, and here it is again today. So why, why is this uh, so important that uh, our fathers uh, wanted to make sure it, wa- it received proper attention at the beginning of Trinity, and then as we are very close to the, to the end of Trinity? I want to su- suggest to you that uh, one reason this parable continues to have importance uh, for us is because it was important from the beginning to the original audience and those same reasons apply for us today. The original audience was Jesus' disciples and this parable uh, uh, certainly uh, was used, Jesus used it uh, in his sermons to, to acknowledge and to explain uh, why the Jewish leaders were rejecting him which they were as I said, he probably, certainly is used in synagogues. Matthew uh, tells that Jesus, uh, Matthew's account has Jesus uh, using this parable at the, uh, the very last week of his life right after his triumphal entry uh, and, uh, in his, uh, into Jerusalem and then his cleansing of the temple. Uh, both of those events, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. Uh, are triumphant, but they're certainly not vanquishing. Uh, Surrounding those two light-filled events reign vast pools of darkness that our Lord and His followers went through. Remember this, that the blind, the crippled, the poor, the worthless, the unclean, those who didn't even have permission to worship in the temple flooded in from the villages and found Him in the temple, and he healed them all, according to the text. And that's about the time that then the little children in uh, Jerusalem started to refer to him, calling him the son of David. Uh, And the Pharisees were furious about that, and Jesus spoke to them directly, the chief priests and Israel's leaders, when he said, Did you never read in the scripture, The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head corner.'" Uh, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation that is bringing forth the fruits thereof. And then he, and then he tells this parable, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king that gave a feast for the wedding, and the invited guests did not come. So the main point, at least then, and to a large degree applicable today uh, is that the, those who were to receive, who were expected to receive this message and receive their Messiah, in particular here Israel, rejected the king and rejected their Messiah. They insulted the king who is God himself. They killed the king's servants. Uh, Israel and her leaders killed the prophets in the Old Testament and they made common cause with Herod to kill John the Baptist. And now, finally, the apostasy of that leadership reaches its fullness in their attempt to kill their God, Jesus Christ. Uh, there, there are three lessons, a lot more than that, but I'm going to give you three points, three things to remember uh, from this parable. Uh, and these are, are themes that we've seen throughout Uh, well we see it throughout the year uh, because they're part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian these themes uh, have been repeated over and over again and they basically answer the question how are we as God's people to live in this world at this time first of all by inference we know that God's people are to live with humility and generosity two things don't fall asleep on me I know as soon as you say humility and generosity you say oh boy I've heard this before Humility and generosity, fundamental characteristics of the Christian. Uh, Those who enter into the kingdom are humble and God is gracious. Humility and generosity are marks of discipleship in which we imitate Jesus himself. Not only will the disciple of Jesus live with true humility, but he will give uh, and, and he, Jesus, will give everything, the whole wide universe, to the humble, to the humiliated, to those who have nothing to offer back. God honors, furthermore, the friend of the poor, the lame, the blind, the losers of this world. And so this is the point, uh, one that has been made over and over again in the church. Humility and generosity or at the very heart of how Jesus lived and how he taught his disciples to behave. Right? Correct. Uh, Jesus himself was humble, and he's generous, and you, if you wish to follow Jesus, to truly follow Jesus, uh, then you should pursue those virtues of humility and generosity. Secondly, Jesus held up the failure of Israel's leadership in the parable of the marriage, marriage feast. I've already alluded to that. According to the logic of the parable, most of the leaders, the leadership of Israel, would miss out on the messianic banquet uh, because they had other priorities. Uh, I bought a house. I've married a wife. I've purchased a mule. Uh, Good, The good devours the best, and that's a principle that we should keep in mind. Does the good in my life devour the best? Uh, they all have excuses for turning down the host, who is Jesus the Messiah. Their rejection of God's invitation reveals to the whole world just how profoundly Israel's leadership, uh, not all of Israel, obviously, but their leadership at that time had profoundly destroyed Distorted God's revelation to Abraham God's promise to Abraham was a promise to the whole world and that's clear in what he says to Abraham that through Abraham the whole world would inherit all of this not only to Israel and that fact is vividly portrayed as the blind, the lame, the unwashed and the unwanted come to Jesus in the temple and he receives them robustly so uh, those who cons- and then there's the, the obvious irony that those who consider themselves to be the true children of Abraham and in a position to judge their brethren and those outside of Israel end up being excluded from the kingdom while those who are despised and shunned as worthless end up taking their seats in the most important feast ever. Here's another point then that and this is an application to us as well uh, that is this frequently made over and over again. This is it. Listen, God Almighty will bring his purpose, his finality to perfection and God Almighty will fill the universe with his incarnate joy. He will do that. He is doing that. He is accomplishing that, and and he will continue to do that until it is perfected. And so here uh, I want to suggest to all of us is an opportunity for us to do some self-examination and and that question. Do I allow the, 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 the good to eat up the best in my life? Furthermore, I think it's a warning that we ought not to be presumptuous about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do I think that my... My salvation, my position in the kingdom, my beatitude is so certain that I am beyond the common duties of every Christian. can't tell you how many theologians I know that actually I think live that way. It's uh, embarrassing. Uh, do I think that my salvation, my beatitude, is so certain that I'm beyond the common duties of every Christian? Do I think that my service to God is so necessary that I'm, rele- I'm released from the common life of, of the church? Do I think that I have some special claim upon the promise of, promises of Christ that sets me above all other Christians? We ought not to be presumptuous. Uh, about our relationship with our Lord. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. Uh, let me say this. God is bringing about his perfections, his perfect joy and beauty and splendor and the whole wide universe. His incarnate joy and splendor is being perfected and will be perfected with or without us, our the invitation that we have is to be partners with God, to participate with God in this holy work. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you find, bid them to the marriage. Many are called, full, uh, but uh, few are chosen. The history is full of these monuments to uh, sin and unbelief uh, and and uh, degradation. Branch of, uh, branch of uh, Israel is broken off uh, and so that Gent- not all of the branches, but uh, Israel in their unbelief is broken off so that the Gentiles, Paul says, may be uh, grafted in. These are warnings against attitudes of the mind and the heart that spoil life like presumption, self-reliance, independence, and unbelief. Of course, we're not like the Pharisees. Right. None of it really applies to us. Um, we are more Christ-like. Uh, we are more big-hearted uh, and full of grace. We get it. We get Jesus' point. And, and I think we do think that. And I think to some degree there's some truth that we do understand. We see that, but we then are blind to, uh, blind to ourselves. But the parable will not let us walk away that easily. The end of the parable, when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there uh, which had not on a wedding garment, and he said unto him, "Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment?" And and he was, "I didn't know I had one." I mean, where are they? He didn't say that. He was speechless. He didn't know what to say. Uh, and, and then the king uh, said to his servants, "Bind him and bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness." which is a, a an odd thing to say, our darkness. How disappointing uh, Jesus can be sometimes. Uh, I'm being facetious when I say that. Just so you know, no one brings heritage herishes, charges against me after this. Could this... I think that there's a tendency to think that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of pure and indiscriminate tolerance, and it is not. That's not the case. Jesus is not purely and indiscriminately tolerant of everything that goes on in the world. Uh, The kingdom of God is not wide-minded, non-judgmental, and tolerant of everyone. Here the king comes in pushing his weight around and he has the man bound and cast into, put away in outer darkness. Now, let me say this, without exception the church fathers understood this to be a reference that signified baptism and the infusion of the heavenly virtues of faith, hope, and charity into the Christian. So it isn't just a matter of 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 finding those that haven't been baptized, but it's a matter of responsibility for those who have been baptized, and this is what it is. Uh, This, uh, the, the gospel of God's love and grace, yes, is realized through the grace of holy baptism, but that does not mean that the sins of Christians smell as roses by virtue of our baptism. It does not, what it does mean is that we don't have to sin. That's what it means. No, you don't have to sin. It means that sin is no triviality. Uh, Sin is against the will of God and it's destructive of the kingdom and, and destructive of us. The Holy Mother Church, through St. Paul, instructs us that holy baptism is a sacrament of the new birth, and that infuses us with the ability to actually avoid sin and love God with our whole heart and mind. St. Paul said as much. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How absurd that is. How can we who die to sin rather than live in sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death. Listen, Uh, Christians do not have to sin. Uh, We have been equipped by the Holy Spirit, Holy Baptism and and all of the sacraments of the church to live a life of virtue, faith, hope and charity. Now listen, God, through Jesus Christ, has saved us. He is saving us, and he will save us. But we're not being saved alone. This is, I'm finishing up now. Uh, we are not saved alone. We're saved together as members of the Holy Catholic Church, the family of God, and the body of Christ. The Anglicans of Morbeth had a big two-story ale house, uh, outfitted. With cups and platters, long tables, chairs, benches, tablecloths, and a fireplace where the parishioners of Morbath ate together, worked together, grew together, corrected one another, and enjoyed a common life in Christ that was built upon the common life of the church. This is an image of of a parish uh, and of what we call today community, real community, a real parish, a real village. We have our undercroft, we have agape, we have barbecue, we have home groups, we have gifted teachers, we have our industrious, brilliant, and far above average children. Right? You all agree with me on that. We have our acolytes, uh, our servers, and all of the service committees in our devoted vestry. We have Julie as our administrator who keeps things moving in an order. We have Ken in our glorious choir and our beloved organist Wallace who train us so that we can actually render music blended of instruments in the human voice. Music that really is fit to offer up to the King of Glory. You have two full-time priests whose lives are dedicated, consecrated to the blessed Trinity and to the altar, and to you. We, we have this blessed community of all saints. And we have Father Dan, whose wisdom and constancy fills our hearts with gratitude. And we have Father Jean, whose flashes of true, scary, sometimes theological brilliance, is only matched by his authentic love for Christ and his bride. And We have Father Mark with us and his family for a little bit longer before we send them off to, uh, to the cathedral. The Church Fathers declared without exception extra ecclesiam nulla salus, no salvation outside of the Church. No one is saved in a splendid isolated individualism because that doesn't actually exist. But neither is anyone saved by relinquishing personal responsibility. We are saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved together as members of the body of Christ. The meek and harmless lamb of God, the shepherd of Israel who loves every single one of us as much as he loves the whole. Holiness in our life together is a mark of our following him. Holiness in our individual lives. Holiness in our family. Holiness in our parish. Holiness among our pagan neighbors we love and care for and our pagan relatives we care and love. Submission to his will confidence in God's destiny for our life and humility and generosity. That will rout the devil and his attempts to turn the kingdom of light into just so many more pools of darkness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.